All right, well, we are in week three of a very long series, a series that is going to take us approximately three years. It's called the Gospel Project. And what we're doing with the Gospel Project is we're, we're looking at how the Word of God from cover to cover, the, the revelation of God, leads us to Jesus Christ, leads us to acknowledge Him as Lord and Savior and Redeemer and Healer and coming King. And what we're going to be looking at today is, is kind of a pause. We started in Genesis, obviously. You started at the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And we spent uh, the, the first Sunday in the fact that God created everything, that, and he created it good, and he created it by design, and he created everything for a purpose. And Jesus Christ came to restore the brokenness that has resulted from human sin, and, and our betrayal of what God entrusted to us as his special creation. And Jesus came to heal that, to restore that, and to begin renewing that in us, so that through us, he can bring the new creation into the world. Then the next week, the second week, we looked at the fact that we, as a special creation, humanity bears the image of God. And God said, let us create humanity in our image and after our likeness so that they would rule over everything that has been created. And then he gave us the task of forming and filling the earth, of working, kind of co-ruling the world with God. And we looked at these three realities that we bear God's image in our roles as his co-rulers over the earth, through our relationships with one another, most especially the marriage relationship. And God created man and woman as, as equal partners for this task that he has assigned them. And that God, uh, Psalm 8, created us as a crown of glory and honor in creation and over creation. And today we're going to just kind of, we're just going to kind of rest on those two things and we're going to hear from Psalm 96 and 2 Corinthians chapter 4 that we have been created, we have been made for the glory of God. And what are we to do with that? And how do we glorify God? And what does it mean? What is the glory of God? And how do we live in light of the fact that God is glorious? So if you have your Bibles... Grab those right now and turn to Psalm 96. Psalm 96. Here it is, English Standard Version. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. 
Yes, the world is established, it shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult in everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. And then just flip over the New Testament. We'll look at this passage too a little later on. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians 4, 1 to 6. This is Paul speaking uh, to a church that he dearly loves. Talking about his own ministry and, and, and Timothy's. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or the tampering with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I just want to read that, that last verse one more time. This verse 6. So powerful. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness. And here he's reflecting on Genesis 1-3 when God you know, spoke and he said, let there be light. Let light shine out of darkness. Has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Boy, just... Ponder that sentence for a while. It's truly amazing. God has shone in our hearts to give light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. To know Jesus is to know the glory of God. It's marvelous. Wonderful. And let's meditate on that today as we look at these texts. Well, in the Gospel Project, we are exploring various doctrines of the Christian faith too. And, and this one is doctrine number 97, the glory of God. And so this is going to come up on the screen, then we'll talk a little bit about it. Essential doctrine 27, God's glory. The glory of God is his manifest work. The way he represents his perfect character through his activity. It also refers to his excellent reputation and is given as one of the reasons we are to praise his name. Another sense of the word is the inherent beauty of God, the unbearable brightness and beauty of his being as he radiates his own attributes and characteristics for all to witness. Scripture speaks of humanity as having fallen short of God's glory, Romans 3.23, because we have rejected the purpose for which God created us to glorify him. God's glory 
is about God's beauty. God's glory is about God's activity. God's glory is about God's character. In Exodus chapter 3, Moses is debating with God and and he, he asks God, well, I'm going to these people, but I don't know really who you are. What's your name? And God answers, I am who I am. When they ask you who sent you, say, I am sent me to you. Now, if you look in the footnotes of most of your Bibles, it'll say, I am who I am. That might be the translation, or it'll offer the translation, I will be who I will be. And uh, as I looked at this very specifically as part of uh, my master's thesis years ago, uh, studying narrative linguistic strategies of the Hebrew text, great, you, you should read it sometime. It's about 100 pages long, put you right to sleep. Anyway, as I looked at it, and I looked at where the verbs happened and how the, our relative clause, because it's really three words, ehye, asher, ehye, and um, it's I am, or I will be, because uh, it's a the certain verb form can kind of go either way, and who, which, or that, and then the same word again, ehye, ehye, asher, ehye. But when you have something in front of a, a, an imperfect verb, it kind of changes the sense of it. And, and so what I kind of determined as I studied this and thought about it and read you know, a whole bunch of Hebrew scholars on this, is that perhaps we should be looking at this not so much as a one-to-one, but to grasp the concept of, of this. God said, I am who I will be. I am who you will experience me to be as I act. I am in this moment with you as a burning bush, but I am going to be with you throughout this journey and and you're going to experience different things of me. So I am who I will be and I will be who I am. And so even the name of God requires not a simple definition of attributes of God that never change. Those are great. But an experience of God that is ever growing. The glory of God isn't something we can define. The glory of God is something we have to experience. The the glory of God is Moses coming down off the mountain with his face shining and he has to hide it because the the glory, people can't stand the glory of God. The the glory of God is the mountain of Sinai smoking and billowing and and this trumpet blast and and the Ten Commandments being spoken to all the people. Read it carefully. And, And them saying, oh, Moses, don't let God speak to us again. You go up on the mountain. God can talk to you. Then you come and talk to us. Don't let God talk to us again. It'll kill us. The glory of God is an experienced thing. The glory of God is, is the t- tabernacle being set up in Exodus chapter 40 and the glory of God falling and filling the, the place with smoke so that the priest can't even enter. The, the glory of God is the pillar of fire and smoke that is guiding the people of Israel on their 40 years of wilderness journey. And when it stops, they stop. And when it moves, they move. And it's, it's an ongoing living experience of God's presence with his people. This is the glory of God. The glory of God is in the face of Jesus Christ. 
See, we get to the New Testament, it goes from being this this, uh, presence that is seen as a cloud or as a bright light or as as something unapproachable and, and scary, and it becomes Emmanuel, God with us, in the form of a baby in the form of a toddler, in the form of a 12-year-old boy who says, didn't you know I had to be about my father's business? It becomes a man who comes and says to to, to John the Baptist, hey, we got to do this thing to fulfill all righteousness. And then Jesus starts ministering in the power of the Holy Spirit and, and the glory of God is him touching the leper and welcoming the sinner and seeking and saving the lost. And the glory of God is on display as Jesus hangs on the cross and cries, oh my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The, the, the reality of the glory of God is something you experience, not something you define and control. And then as the New Testament goes on, something very marvelous happens. And this is maybe the hardest part for us to wrap our minds around and even accept. That when God purposes to call a people to himself and indwell them with his own spirit, he begins to transform us into the image and likeness of Christ so that his glory would be revealed through his people. Go back to to, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter chapter 3. Like just before we read, just before we read what what we read in chapter 4, you know, about, about... God has shone his light into our hearts, giving the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But go back to chapter 3 and verse 18. And we all, Paul's talking about himself, and he's talking about the Corinthian church, this messed up, dysfunctional church that he's been working with. Read 1 Corinthians. It's a gong show, man. We all, church, with unveiled faces, not like Moses who had to hide his face, we We, with unveiled faces, with the indwelling permanent presence of the Holy Spirit, we, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And maybe you just want to pause the video right now and read this verse again and let it sink in. And we all with unveiled faces. And you can go back and read the whole context of this in chapter 3. We'll go back to another verse here in a minute. We all with unveiled faces beholding the glory of the Lord. Paul's talked about the Lord as Jesus Christ. Are being transformed into the same image. In Romans, I believe chapter 8 or maybe it's chapter 12, Paul talks about that the Spirit is working to transform us into the image of the Son of God. After his likeness, we're going right back to Genesis chapter 1 here, people. That God's redemptive, restoring, reconciling work in our lives right now is transforming us into the image of his Son. We are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another or from glory to glory in, in some other translations, but it's this increasing glory. It starts dim because we're pretty dim and it grows 
in us as God works in us and through us. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Now just back up a little bit. Go back to uh, chapter, in chapter 3 to verse 5 and 6. Just partway through um, verse 5. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us. But our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. God makes us sufficient. It's not because, you know, church, we don't get to display the glory of God because we're awesome. We get to display the glory of God because we're not and we need him. It's not about us and what we can do, how good we are, how much we fail. God is the one who works and who makes us sufficient, who is transforming us into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. Church, we need to hear this. The world will see the glory of God in Christ as he is revealed in and through his people. That is what Psalm 96 calls us to do. Sing, sing, sing. Three imperatives. Ascribe, ascribe, ascribe. Three imperatives. Plural, y'all got to do this. Y'all got to sing a new song. Y'all got to sing to the Lord. Y'all got to just sing. Y'all got to ascribe to God the glory due his name. Everybody's in on it. We need the whole people of God doing this to get the message out. To, so that we would enter into that transformative work that God is doing in our lives. The world will see the glory of God in Christ as he is revealed in us. Are we going to make a mess of it? Are we going to disappoint ourselves? Are we going to disappoint people? Are people going to point the fingers and look? If that's what a Christian is, man, he's got a pretty messed up life. Absolutely. You know what? But that might be our greatest witness. For when we are weak, he is strong. You know, we need to get to a place where we're not afraid to be messed up people. We need to be honest about our struggles, our failings, our need for a savior. You know, some people accuse the church of being full of hypocrites. Well, guess what? They're all right. That's an accurate accusation. We preach this text. We say we believe in this. We say we're going to follow this. We're going to follow this Jesus who calls us to care for the widow and the orphan and the hungry. And we're to, you know, we're, we're to live out this radically servant-based life. But so many of us don't really live it out all that well, do we? And we live it out in some ways, but in other ways, we're pretty stinking selfish still. Yeah, we're hypocrites because we're all broken. Yeah, we're all hypocrites because we aren't perfect. We're, we're trans, being transformed into the image of his son. We're not there yet. Now, Paul even says in, in Philippians 2, you know, he's like, I'm giving up everything to follow Jesus and, and so I can experience Jesus. And he says, but I haven't got it yet. I'm not there yet. I'm still in process, man. Again, that's the apostle Paul. So, wow. What about us? You know, we're not here as a church because we're perfect. We're here because we need a savior. We need a redeemer. We need a healer. We need a coming king because we need saving and redeeming and healing. And none of us handles power very well at all. 
Psalm 96 really calls us to, to glorify God in all that we are and all that we do. I just want to touch on a few things out of Psalm 96. Um, going to try to shorten things up here a bit. We're going to kind of fly by Psalm 96 because I think there's some implications and application of what I was just talking about that's very important for us. But I've already pointed out all the imperative verbs, all of the commands in Psalm 96 are plural. So this is, this is like everybody's got to be in on this. This is a whole congregation kind of thing. You know, while the Psalms might have been written by individuals at certain times for certain situations, most of the Psalms in book four of the Psalter, which is uh, Psalm, 80, uh, Psalm 90, if you just flip the page back, you'll see book four. Most, most of our Bibles will have this. And then there's this uh, song of uh, Moses, the man of God, Psalm 90. And then it goes all the way to Psalm 106. And there's some fairly long Psalms and then uh, book five in 107. But, but there's an overarching, uh, I think, purpose to this uh, main section of the Psalms. And that is that they talk about the kingship of Yahweh and the fact that Yahweh God is a refuge for those in trouble. All at the same time in an interlocking way. The name, the main theme is that Yahweh is king. And throughout this section of the Psalms, I think it's very obvious that the people that would be singing these songs, and, and I'm, I'm assuming here, and I'm making an assumption here, that God led the compilers of the Psalms, whoever they were and whenever it happened, to put these Psalms in a specific order to lead people in the worship of God and the transformation of their own lives. And so this book, this collection of Psalms, from 90 to 106, has a very interesting trajectory. It starts with Moses, and it ends, actually, with Moses, I believe. Ends with a whole reminiscence in Psalm 106, a repetition of everything that God did in and through the Exodus, through the leadership of Moses and Aaron. And this comes up over and over again in this section of the Psalms. So, so we start with uh, the, the, the God speaking through Moses about, uh, about him drawing them out. And this would have reminded everybody reading these Psalms that the Exodus was the key salvation story of the Old Testament. And then it goes on the greatness and the goodness of his works and, and the fact that uh, starts right off, Lord, you've been our dwelling place for all generations. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High. And, and the first number of songs are about dwelling with God and dwelling in his presence. It's about the refuge that God offers his people. And then there's this kind of interlocking thing. It happens like uh, Psalm 90 to 92 talk about the refuge we can find in God. And then Psalm 93 talks about the fact that God is king, that Yahweh is king. He reigns. And then Psalm 94 returns to this theme of refuge. And then Psalm 95 to 99 uh, very much talks about Yahweh is king or Yahweh has become king. He is the ruler. And over and over again, these Psalms speak of Two main events in the Old Testament history, creation and exodus. 
Creation and Exodus formed the whole worldview of the Old Testament, that Yahweh God was creator and that he is redeemer. You can also see this pattern in Psalm 45 to 48, where in Psalm 45 talks about the kingship of God. Psalm 46, the refuge we can find in God. Psalm 47, back to kingship, and then Psalm 48, refuge. And so this, there's this back and forth talk in the Psalms about God is our refuge and strength, the very present help in trouble. Yahweh reigns and he will come to set up his kingdom and he will establish righteousness and truth on the earth. This is the larger context in which, in which Psalm 96 sits. It's about the radical glory of God who is revealed in all of creation, through all of creation, and we are to sing to him, to declare his glory, and to ascribe to him the honor due his name. We, we are created to glorify God. And that happens in three ways. God's glory is revealed through the worship of his people and through the testimony of his creation. And thirdly, the glory of God is revealed through the proclamation of his son. And so the first bit, the glory of God is revealed through the worship of his people. The first 10 verses of Psalm 96 speak to this. It's this repeated, uh, all, all the imperatives, again in the plural, oh, sing to the Lord a new song, sing to the Lord all the earth, sing to the Lord, bless his name, that's an imperative, plural, tell of his salvation or declare, uh, tell, show, speak forth his salvation from day to day. Interesting uh, tidbit here is his salvation is Yeshua To. So uh, the the Hebrew word there, you'll you'll probably be familiar with Yeshua. Yeshua. This is where we kind of get the name Jesus from. His name will be Yeshua because he will save his people from their sins. This is the verb form because of his salvation, his act of salvation, and declare his glory among the nations. Interesting thing with this, this command to declare is it's uh, the root word is also used uh, for, uh, to say, a document or a book or a scroll, something written down. And so this can be a declaration in writing. Uh, put, put it this solidly and this unalterably, pen to paper, declare his glory among the nations. Uh, among the nations, within the nations. And so here's, it's not just, you know, with, within the church, you know, on a Sunday morning, within the synagogue on a Saturday morning, it's declare the glory of God among the nations as you are living among them. Go and make disciples of all nations. As you are going, do this. <laughs> It's, it's when we're living in the midst of everyday life stuff that we are to declare, make known the glory of God. And we are to ascribe to him. Uh, this could also be translated give, but, but it's not like, you know, you can't give God any glory. He's already got enough glory. Uh, he doesn't need any glory from us. But to ascribe to the Lord, this, this kind of has, again, this is a very declarative out there spoken, verbal thing. O families of the peoples, everybody, regardless of nationality, regardless of skin color, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Here, you know, the word glory again, ascribe to the Lord the glory to his name 
bring an offering, come into his courts, worship the Lord in splendor of holiness, tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, Yahweh Malach, Yahweh is king, has become king, and he will come to judge. Well, uh, Mark Futado in his uh, book, uh, Interpreting the Psalms, had this to say. I think this is a great quote. In the first 10 verses of this psalm, the reign of God over the nations results in the worship of God by the nations. In the final verse, the nations experience the blessing of God. Now, if you quickly look at the last three verses, he talks about the Lord is coming to judge and he will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in faithfulness or the peoples in truth. Uh, I, I think truth would have been a better, um, better translation here, but it kind of can go both ways. But here's my question. How is God arriving and bringing judgment a blessing? How, how is God arriving? He comes to judge the earth. He comes to judge the world in righteousness and the peoples and faithfulness. How is this a blessing for the nations? We think of judgment. We usually think of, we think of punishment, don't we? We think you're going to get judged. You're going to get to what's coming to you. It's all downhill from here. You're going to be locked up. Well, God's judgment actually always seems to result in recreation and restoration. When God judged Adam and Eve, and we'll get to this next Sunday, yes, there was punishment. Yes, there are consequences. But God acts to remain in relationship with people. When the flood comes and God's judgment comes, God acts to save a family and through that family, restore all of creation and repopulate the earth. When God acts in judgment to scatter people everywhere and divide them uh, by confusing their language at the Tower of Babel, God acts redemptively by calling Abram out of the nations to make him the father of nations to be a blessing to all these nations that God has just created in judgment. And we could go on. Throughout the Bible, what you'll see over and over again is that when God comes to discipline and judge his people, it always opens the door for restoration and reconciliation. Arthur uh, Weiser in his commentary on Psalms says this, for God's judgment does not after all consist only in calling his opponents to account. It serves to restore his order in the world. This order manifests itself as much in the realm of nature as in that of history, as much in the blessing of the fertility of the earth as in the blessing bestowed upon the nations. And so, God calls us to glorify him and God is glorified in the worship of his people. We sing to him, we ascribe to him glory. God, God is known, his glory is shown in creation. And this, this is the last three verses of, 
of Psalm 96, let the heavens be glad, or, or let them be glad, the heavens and the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the, the fields exuberant and everything in it. Then the, all the trees of the field shall sing for joy before the Lord. Now this is, you know, Jesus says this too, remember on the, uh, as, as he's coming into Jerusalem and the Pharisees are like, hey, you got to tell your disciples to shut up because they shouldn't be saying this thing about you coming as the king. And Jesus is like, hey man, if they don't, if, if I shut them up, the stones are going to cry out. Creation will declare the glory of God and you can't shut it up. For the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies display his handiwork. Day by day they pour forth speech, night after night. They, they, they are not silenced. Uh, Psalm 19. Over and over. Romans chapter 1. We find that the glory of God, his attributes, his righteousness, are all revealed through what God has made. And so God's glory is revealed in the worship of his people. As we come together to worship and to sing, when we sing, we should be singing of nothing but the glory and the majesty and the wonder and the marvel that God is. Worship is not about us and how we feel. Worship is about God and what he is worth. And God's glory is revealed through nature. And ultimately, ultimately, so I've already hit on this earlier, God is revealed in his glory through Jesus Christ, his son. And so if you want to see what God looks like, how God acts and what his glory really is, you look at the person and the work and the life of Jesus Christ. If you have seen me, you've seen the Father, was Jesus' answer to one of his disciples asking, hey, just show us the Father and that'll be enough for us. You can look that up in John 14. Well, how do we, how do we respond to this? What's, what does the glory of God do for my life right now? And what does the glory of God do for your life right now amidst the chaos that we're living in? I, I think this is why reading through Psalm 90 to 106 is a good exercise for us right now. Read the whole thing to see how, you know, in the midst of, in the midst of chaos, in the midst of uh, a people, uh, I believe these, these songs were put together at a time when the people were in Babylon, when they were, they, they were living in a foreign land under pagan rule and they were, they were being expected to worship foreign gods. And, and, and these songs are, are the cries of the heart to make sure that they remember God is creator, Yahweh is creator, and he is already king. He has created, he has redeemed, and he will bring his people back. He will make good on his promises uh, the, the new exodus is going to happen and we're going to live to experience it. And this, I think, is what all these songs point to. And so in a world of chaos, in a world of decay, and in, in, in a world that, that where you don't have the freedom, these people didn't have the freedom. They didn't have their temple anymore. They didn't have a place to worship anymore. God reminds them that he is in charge and he is good and he is in the business of restoring his people on the other side of judgment because they're in Babylon because of judgment. Psalm 96 calls us to sing and ascribe to the God the glory he already has 
and has already displayed in creation and in his former works of rescuing, redeeming, and establishing his people. So, questions for the head, the heart, and the hands. How will the knowledge of God's glory in Christ shape your outlook this week? Heart, what earthly delights and desires do you need to repent of so that you can worship the Lord? And we're going to spend most of our time on that question. And then the hands, I think, will be a natural outflow of answering both of those questions. How will you proclaim Jesus as Lord through your words and actions this coming week? So we know that the glory of God is revealed in the worship of his people, in all of creation, and especially through his son, Jesus Christ. So if we know that, how does that change your outlook this week as you encounter people and as you encounter the struggles and the problems and the trials that this next week is going to bring you? How do you, how do you deal with life? knowing that God is the almighty creator and king and worthy of all glory and praise. Second question has to do with the heart. And I want us to kind of camp out here. This will take probably the most time because it's going to, and you're going to maybe want to come back to this and think through it a little bit because the heart issue with the glory of God is really where everything happens. Our hearts and minds need to be renewed in this knowledge that God is glorious. That the psalm calls us to the act of singing and ascribing, and these are an avenue for us to enter into the transformational work that God wants to do in our lives to, as 2 Corinthians says, move us from glory to glory. To, to transform us into the image of Christ. Now, why does Psalm 96, why does singing this psalm help us with that? Because, uh, and this is what got Martin Luther in a lot of trouble in the 1500s, is that he was writing songs for everybody to sing that contained his theology. And your theology is probably more tied to what you sing than what you study. Because what we sing goes into our hearts. What we study, kind of, it gets into our minds and maybe eventually it works down into our hearts. But when you sing it, it moves your heart and sets patterns in place for you to believe. Our hearts and minds need to be renewed and the Psalms call us to sing the goodness and the glory and the wonder of who God is, that he is creator, that he is redeemer, that he is the one who rescues and establishes us as his people. But our hearts and our affections, man, can we be distracted or what? We are so easily distracted from God's glory and, and God's majesty. Creation's amazing, but often we replace the unseen creator with seen creation. This is the problem in the rest of Romans 1, right? They gave up the glory of God revealed for the, to worship things that are created. We don't want to do that. We want to make sure that we're focusing not on the stuff of the world, but on the giver, on the glory of God who made it all. You see, idolatry in the sense 
is, is, not just a, is not just a sense of a, uh, idolatry isn't about going to a shrine or, or bowing down to a piece of wood or, or a piece of uh, a rock or a carved image or, or a picture or, or anything like that. Idolatry, th- those can be manifestations of idol- idolatry, but idolatry really is a state of the heart that says, God isn't enough and I need something tangible to, 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 to focus on so that I can control everything. You know, idolatry really is the elevation of good things to God things. When we place more worth on the good things that God has given us in life than on God himself, we fall into idolatry. And this can be anything in anyone. This can be friends, family, job, sports, music, reading, anything. Tim Keller says this, when something besides Jesus, or, or idolatry is something besides Jesus that we feel we must have to be happy, something that is more important to our heart than God, something that is enslaving our heart through inordinate desires. And so there's a few questions you can ask yourself to identify what, what is it in my life that's an idol? at this moment, or, or in this period of my life? What, what is it that I am trusting in to bring my life fullness and meaning more than Jesus Christ? Here's some questions, six questions, to help us identify the idolatry in our hearts and these delights and desires that we need to repent of. First question, what is my greatest nightmare? What do I worry about the most? Question two, what if I failed or lost it would cause me to feel that I did not even want to live? What is it that keeps me going? Third, what do I rely on or comfort myself with when things go badly or become difficult or stressful? Question four, what do I think most easily about? Where does my mind go when I'm free? What preoccupies me? Question five, what makes me feel the most self-worth? What am I proudest of? And then six, what do I really want or expect out of life? What would make me really happy? Those questions come uh, from Tim Keller out of the discussion guide on the prodigal God, a series you could watch on, uh, on Right Now Media. Keying in on this whole topic of idolatry and what do we need to repent of? What are the good things in our lives that have taken over the place of God or Jesus and his glory in our lives? And how do we repent of that? How do we move beyond that? And the key question is, you know, what have you built your life around? And, and, and if that were to be removed, what would you be left with? Again, Paul in Philippians says, you know, I've left everything for the sake of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord, to be found in him. How, how do we get to that place where we can have such a, a centered life that it, you know, 
I think later on in that message, you know, at the conclusion, Paul says, I've, I've learned to be content regardless of the circumstances, whether in plenty or want, whether, you know, rich or poor, whether, whether I'm hungry or well-fed, whether I'm clothed or, or not. It's, he's so centered on Jesus that the circumstances are wholly secondary to his sense of well-being and his sense of purpose. You know, and I think if we're really honest with ourselves, this last year and a half has revealed that we've got a lot of idols in our lives. Things that we run to, things that we need in our lives in order to feel a sense of self-worth, a sense of stability, a sense of control, uh, 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 you know, all of that stuff. We, and we rail against the fact that some of those things have been taken away. And that reveals the depth of our idolatry in those things. And so if there's one thing you need to take away from this morning, it is this. God is glorious. He is king. We need to get back to this simple reality that the book four of the Psalms leads us into. Lord, you have been our dwelling place for all generations. Now, if, if you're talking to a group of people who are mourning the loss of temple, this, this place where God said, I will dwell in Jerusalem in this place forever and ever. And suddenly the glory departs from the temple in Ezekiel. Like God says, I'm out of here, I'm done, I'm leaving. And then the temple gets destroyed. Listen to what the first line of this book of Psalms, book four starts. Lord, you have been our dwelling place. Suddenly, suddenly everything changes. It's not the temple. It's not this pile of rocks. It's not this building that houses God, but, but God himself becomes a dwelling place for us. A refuge in which we find stability and safety and security and meaning and purpose. It's in the Lord himself, not a building here on earth. He who dwells, Psalm 91, in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Psalm 92, again, I'm just going to read the first verses. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night. To the music of the lute and the harp and the melody of the lyre, for you, Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands, I sing for joy. It's not the circumstances around us, but the God who is with us. Lord, thank you for your word to us this morning. Lord, thank you that your glory is above all. That, Lord, as we sing these songs, as we, as we look through the book of Psalms, we see it's your hand, it's your right arm, it's your power, it's your glory, it's your kingship, it's your creation, it's your redemption, it's your ever, 
everlasting, unfailing, sustaining love that we glory in. We ascribe to you, Lord, the glory due your name. And Lord, as we look around, all of creation sings your praises, but they don't have a choice. They, they offer and they display the glory of God because of what they are and how you've created them. We, however, have a choice and we have to listen to the command, sing to the Lord a new song, sing to the Lord all the earth, sing to the Lord, praise his name. And we get the privilege of choosing to worship you in spirit and in truth. Oh Lord, may your spirit search us. Illumine those areas where we need to be transformed more into the glory of your one and only Son. Lord, may your spirit open our eyes to see the glorious things that you have for your children. We who have been adopted into sonship from the creation of the world, Ephesians chapter 1, that you love us so much, you pursue us desperately. Lord, may you open our eyes to see the marvel that you are and that all that we need is found in you that we may resonate with Paul who says, I've left it all to know Christ Jesus my Lord and to be found in him and to suffer the loss of all things so as to attain the resurrection of the dead. Oh Lord, we're not there. None of us is. Well, Lord, help us to pursue you and your glory and proclaim it day to day. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your word. Thank you for showing us the Father through your life, your death, your resurrection. Holy Spirit, guide us and empower us this week as we seek to live out what it means to be your people, to reflect your glory, and to give you praise. In Jesus' name.